Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic, to cosplay, to Schitt's Creek, to Supernatural, and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. We are wrapping up our four-part Ryan Murphy discussion. I've decided to get rid of the celebration part of it because, honestly, if you've listened to the other three, even though we liked some stuff and we liked some of the shows, we haven't really been celebrating Ryan Murphy. We've been critiquing Ryan Murphy shows, I think. Uh, But we're wrapping it up with American Crime Story, which is by far out of the four we've covered, I think the best. And I think that's because Ryan Murphy was involved, but not to the same extent that he was with the other three shows that we have covered. And I think that's why these are actually better. They're more solid. They don't seem to, at least I don't think they push the envelope too far. And of course, once again, but this is true with every single thing that he does. All the performances are amazing and spectacular. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why Ryan Murphy gets away with a lot of the stuff he does, because he surrounds himself with amazing, talented actors. So, (laughs) Uh, but I do want to say also on a personal note, I am very happy to be wrapping up Ryan Murphy. (laughs) I, this was a lot for my psyche to be watching all of this darkness. And, you know, with the exception of Glee, there's nothing really light in any of these. And so it was a lot for my brain to take. And even though I'm not necessarily lightening it up because I'm binging True Blood right now, but True Blood at least has some lightness to it. It has some people that are actually good and some humanity to it. So, yeah, so I'm very happy to be wrapping this up. But before I have Tiff introduce herself, just a quick housekeeping note that, of course, we have started our horror trivia event. We haven't started the event, but we've started the signups. So if you'd like to be a part of that please head on over to our LinkedIn and you'll see it's the very top thing is for the Google Sheets sign up. Once again, all of those are going to be separate from the podcast that starts September 4th. We're going to change the rules up a little bit because a lot of people said it's going to be hard for them to make all 10 nights and I understand. So we're changing that up a little bit. So look for that probably by the time this episode drops, you will have seen uh, an update on the rules and such on that. Oh, and we're going to be launching Patreon because since we have switched over to joining uh, Wizard Studios Network, which I'm very happy to say that we are part of that, which I'm sure people have seen that announcement already. But because of that, we, of course, are not with Anchor anymore. So we're not accepting anything through there. So we're going to be opening up our Patreon account. I'm hoping to do that by September 1st. So that way you can support the show and get a lot more benefits. And Patreon is a lot better anyway. 
So look for that soon. Okay, so Tiff, what are you into right now in pop culture? Well, hi, hey, hi. hello. <laughs> it's good to be back. It's been a I while. I know it's been a while. <laughs> So I have been watching in real time, which how you know is sometimes irritating because they're commercials, but I usually let my DVR at least uh, capture the episode and then I can blast through the commercials. But I've been watching TPS's Miracle Workers Oregon Trail, and it is the most ridiculous show that you could possibly watch. <laughs> uh, it stars Steve Buscemi and Daniel Radcliffe, yes, Harry Potter <laughs> himself, who actually has like very good comedic timing. They both do. Um, and I knew that about Steve Buscemi. When I first watched um, Miracle Workers, they this is a, an anthology. That's what the, how they consider it because each year, each season has been different. So um, the, the first season, gosh, what did they do? Uh, now I can't remember what they actually did. It was, so, oh, I remember Steve Buscemi played God and Daniel Radcliffe was like one of his sort of kind of, angels but like administrative so they're trying to uh, they're trying to um uh, prevent uh, another apocalyptic event because god has decided that people are awful and he's just going to wipe out everybody so daniel radcliffe is trying to prevent that and then the second season was set in like the 1500s in england and it's just them being ridiculous in 1500s England because it's got a very modern sensibility. And of course, this season is Oregon Trail. So it's set in the 1840s and they're trying to get to Oregon because, you know, dysentery, <laughs> diphtheria. And then you get all of the things that come along with trying to get to Oregon in a covered wagon. So it's it's really irreverent and it's silly. It does not take itself seriously at all. So I do recommend it if you like, like silliness. It's funny. <laughs> well, when you first mentioned that, I was like, I've never heard of this. And then when you started describing the first season of it, I was like, oh, okay. Now I know what you're talking about. Right, right. Because it's all different. It's all different. Yeah. Like each season, they're, they're not linked at all. They just completely go, just, complete difference in every season. So if I talk about this one, you're not going to know <laughs> what the first season was about <laughs> at all. Because yeah. it's all different. <laughs> yeah, awesome, awesome. I'll have to, maybe someday I'll check that out someday soon. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And what I'm into is I took a break from binging True Blood and I watched the documentary Pray Away on Netflix, which I didn't realize was uh, that Ryan Murphy was an executive producer on it. And so when it started, it said, Ryan Murphy presents. I'm like, are you serious? I'm not getting away from him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but he's just a producer on it. And I'm not saying that like that's not like a job. That's not like a big, it's a big job. But I'm not like saying that, you know, it's a Ryan Murphy thing. But it's a really good documentary all about conversion, um, like all the like Exodus, which was the big uh, church group that was founded like in the late 70s, I believe it was. And they were founded to basically to convert gay people. And it's very it's it's this documentary is talking to all these people that left Exodus, um, including the founder of Exodus. And talking about the trauma that that experience inflicted on them. And also the fact that these people are dealing with the fact that they inflicted trauma on others. And it's very sad. It's very hard to watch. It will make you very angry. 
and especially since this is still going on today, because they also are following a um, man who used to identify as a trans woman. And now he's like, nope, that was all evil and wrong and horrible. And so that's sad too. So it's, it's really good and important documentary, but it's very hard to watch. So I do want to say that because it could be very triggering for some people, but yep. So that's what I'm into. Okay. So let's get into the anthology series, American crime story, which it's only had two seasons so far. First season covering OJ second season covering the assassination of G Giovanni Versace. Although really it's not just covering him. It mainly is covering Andrew Cannon. So we're going to talk first about the people versus OJ Simpson and talk about that first season overall. And I want to say, I'm upset. I think both of these seasons are spectacular. So like I said before, this was my favorite part of my Ryan Murphy binged. Okay. So this cast is pretty amazing and spectacular. Of course, uh, Sarah Paulson is in this because even though I don't consider these necessarily completely Ryan Murphy shows, Sarah Paulson is, of course, in that family of Ryan Murphy. So she's on this. And then you've got people that I, I was trying to think, because some of these people have never been on a Ryan Murphy show that I could think of, like Sterling K. Brown, I don't think ever has, and John Travolta. But it's just an amazing cast of people and amazing performances, I think. So Tiff, I just want to talk about that first. Like, How do you think they did with the casting? Because this is a true story, of course. This is mainly following the trial the quote-unquote trial of the century is what it has always been called. So how do you think they did with the casting of the real-life people? <laughs> I think the casting was, it was outstanding. Everybody, I thought, filled the role exceptionally. Uh, we know that Sarah Paulson, because she's been in so many Ryan Murphy productions, um, we know what she's going to give us. And she's going to give us... Uh, this uh, a level of dedication to a character that you don't often see. She's very dedicated to the craft and um, she's willing to kind of strip herself bare and totally encompass whomever she's playing, uh, which I love about her. She's one of my favorite actresses. Uh, let me tell you, my favorite, of course, is Courtney B. Vance as Johnny Cochran. He, not only the the physical resemblance to Johnny Cochran, because um, they could have gone with somebody who didn't mm -hmm. necessarily look like Johnny, but uh, getting somebody that did resemble him, I mean, he actually looks like he could be like his close cousin. <laughs> and then the way his, his vocal inflection, his tone, the way he walked, I, I mean, he had like the Cochran strut kind of down, the cockiness the confidence, uh, it was all apparent. So Courtney B. Vance, double check, I mean, perfection. And I didn't know about Sterling K. Brown at the time. I, he wasn't on my radar as an actor. I'm sure I'd seen him in other things as, um, you know. Supernatural. Like, yeah, exactly. Supernatural. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of knew him from that but not as a, as a main character in something. So him as Chris Darden, wow. Wow. That was another one who, who like, I mean, Sterling K. Brown is, is more handsome um, than Chris Darden. Sorry, Chris Darden. <laughs> <laughs> it is true, though. 
<laughs> yes. So, I mean, he's more handsome. He's better looking. But he managed to kind of, I always felt like Chris Darden didn't have that because he was going up against the legendary Johnny Cochran. I always felt like he looked intimidated by somebody like Johnny Cochran, by that whole defense team, essentially, because it was stacked uh, with the best of the best, essentially. And the way he managed to kind of shrink himself and shrink into himself and make himself smaller uh, because Sterling K. Brown is a, you know, he's a strapping gentleman. He is, he's tall and he's got, you know, wide, broad shoulders and, you know, he's very fit. Um, but he managed to make himself almost like schlumpy, you know, kind of, kind of schlubby. And, you know, that's a talent. That, that physical presence that somebody can give you on screen, that's a t- that's definitely a talent that a lot of actors don't have. So him, double check also. the You know what? The weakest link I thought at the time uh, when I saw it was probably Cuba Gooden Jr. as OJ. Um, and not just from the physical standpoint. He doesn't, he doesn't resemble OJ in any way, shape, or form. He's, she's shorter than him. Um, he facially, he, he doesn't, he just doesn't resemble him. And I just thought that his performance was more caricature than natural. And I know how you feel about also, uh, John Travolta, (laughs) 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 who I actually think I, you know, I like John Travolta as an actor. I don't think he was well cast in this. I, I thought his also fell into caricature as, opposed to like a natural performance. But overall, I have to give the casting, you know, like an A minus because everybody else was was really, was just outstanding. I remember Selma Blair as Chris Kardashian. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was good too. Yeah. She was good. Yeah. She's Selma Blair is, is like a really, she's a really great actress. She's always mm-hmm. been um, a favorite like since, uh, since cruel intentions. Yes. <laughs> so she was really she was really funny. Like she was over the top, but in a good way. Yeah. So I give it I I give the casting an A minus for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think, you know, when we talk about caricature, I think it could have it would have been very easy for Courtney B. Vance to do that. And he nails Johnny Cochran. I mean, he really gets that down, but it's never feels like an, just an imitation. Because he adds a lot of layers and a lot of depth there. And, you know, like I always say, as long as I can see the character there and I don't see the acting, then I think it's a good performance, especially in the eyes. And I think he really, really had that down because you saw him. I mean, yes, he's very confident man, but you did see some moments where that would be breaking down. And I thought that was very important to see with his character. But yeah, he's he's amazing. Um, and I echo, I, I've talked before about how much I love Sterling K. Brown. I just, I think he's one of the best actors we have around today. He's so good. And what's so good about this performance with him is that, like you said, Tiff, he's got that thing where he's shrinking in on himself and he's got no confidence. I mean, no confidence. He has no, he's he's not very good at flirting, really, either. <laughs> I have to say, we're going to get into flirt. that. but. <laughs> 
horrible flirt. I mean, he blew so many opportunities and you're just like, oh my gosh. I mean, you don't know for sure how much of that was really real. Because right. we'll get into that little love story there. But he was so good. And I'm with you. Sarah Paulson is also one of my favorite actors. So I loved her. Um, and I think David Schwimmer, I want to talk about David Schwimmer just for me, because I thought he was so good at playing Robert Kardashian. And the scene, you know, because you watch his character go from supporting OJ and being behind OJ and then doubting OJ and thinking OJ is guilty. And then he feels guilt over that. And I know that was true. That was real. And so watching him go through that, I think David Schwimmer did a really good job of that. And the scene after the verdict, when he goes into the bathroom and he throws up, was so well done just because you could see all that guilt was just overwhelming him. And yeah, he just couldn't, he couldn't deal with it and couldn't handle it. He yeah. portrayed that anxious, you know, nervous energy mm-hmm. so well. And like you said, you know, that, that scene was extremely nerve wracking. You know, yeah. when he goes into the bathroom, I'm like, oh my goodness, is he going to have a breakdown? Is he going to, you know, is he going to rage out? And instead, it's just this, you know, visceral physical response to this entire trial where he lost a friendship. He lost a, a friend, um, a very close friend. Yeah. They were extremely tight. Um, they had been friends for, for you know, decades, essentially. And he lost all of that because of this. And you see that in that, in that physical response that he has. And David Schwimmer surprised me too, because, you know, I mean, it's David Schwimmer. We know him from as Ross from friends, Mm -hmm. you know, that's his best known role. And that is a total 180 him as Robert Kardashian, because he's playing this more, this very serious character, he doesn't have a total, he doesn't have a lot of levity in yeah. this. He's, he's definitely kind of, um, I don't want to say he's a dork, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't want to say that, <laughs> but very, but very straight laced. I'll yeah. say that, you know, it's interesting to me that he was friends in real life with OJ because they were like kind of polar opposites. Um, mm-hmm. apparently, you know, if you, if you listen to the way people talk about OJ, he was a life of the party and always like very gregarious and Robert Kardashian was pretty straight and narrow. So yeah. very interesting that they were friends in real life. So yes, mm-hmm. David Schwimmer also double check, very excellent casting as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the scene where he takes his daughters to go eat and he's all of a sudden become kind of famous and you can tell he does not want to be famous. This is not something he sought out. I mean, his daughters, on the other hand, well, anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but he didn't want that. And you could tell. And so that is interesting because, yeah, I heard that about OJ, too. And you could tell, even though I do agree, I think Cuba Gooding Jr. gives the weakest performance here. And really, honestly, this whole thing is really, even though it's about him, it's really not about him. It's about everybody else surrounding it and other issues and everything. So it's not just about OJ. It's more about the characters surrounding him and the the people surrounding him and the trial and everything. So it kind of makes sense that he would kind of shrink into the background. But at the same time, I, you know, I kind of felt like Cuba Gooding Jr. was kind of phoning it in. 
he's had, you know, Cuba has a, a deep CV. He's got a very deep career. And oh, he's yeah. actually, mm-hmm. you know, he's a he's a fine, very fine actor. Oh, he is. Like, yeah. you know, he's a great actor. I just don't think this was the right vehicle for him for some mm-hmm. reason. It just, it, it didn't work. But like you said, like the trial in and of itself is like the main character. Exactly. So it's yeah. not, it's not yeah. OJ. Mm-hmm. So I think it's okay. We can forgive him for that. You know, yeah. we can forgive the, that performance because it's definitely not about him. Like, it's like, dude, come on, you're, you're not even secondary. You're like tertiary. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. yeah. So I think we can forgive that the overall performance for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think probably his best moments are after the trial is over. And I think there's, there's a moment where he's going back and he's not being welcomed back into the white world that he was so comfortable in and watching his face and watching how he realizes that he's no longer welcome into this world was, I thought that was pretty well done. So I, I I did like that, but yeah, overall, no. And then John Travolta, (laughs) I mean, I, I like John Travolta. I, I just, (laughs) it was just so much of like a really bad, bad impression is what it felt like to me. I do. I will admit when I watched it the second time, I thought he was a little bit better. And I do think he got some of those feelings of like, you know, this is a character that wants to be the center and wants to be big, but he's not. And especially once Johnny Cochran comes aboard, he like is like a shrinking violet and you watch him like, watching and wanting to be a part of things and sometimes he'll just say something and everybody just looks at him and then just completely ignores him (laughs) what are you worried about (laughs) yeah and so you see some of that sorrow and hurt on his face but he wasn't really that uh, and he was nominated for this which is uh, which blew my mind i mean literally blew my mind not only from like the physical because i swear he was wearing prosthetic i swear he was because his face looked plastic to me <laughs> you don't look it like it looks weird <laughs> and then the hair you know that <laughs> it's just a mess <laughs> it did it did look like <laughs> yeah. yeah the hair was like <laughs> something else it yeah, was. yeah yeah <laughs> but 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 i can forgive it because i think everybody else is so good that you know it's forgivable the performances are just amazing in this and they have to be because this could easily have been like a really, really bad TV movie and felt very like exploitation and stuff. And it didn't turn out feeling that way. So, I mean, I think that's big part is the writing, but it's also the performances. So, yeah. Okay. And I forgot to say on the offset for trigger warnings for this episode for both parts. So I'm going to say that really quickly here because we're about to get into part of that. Um, trigger warning course for this for racism, uh, trigger warning for, uh, we may get into talking about police violence. So I want to also say that trigger warning there. So if that's triggering for you, domestic violence, of course, since that's a big part of this. And then for the second part, um, there will be trigger warnings for, well, murder and serial killer, um, that kind of stuff for, for sexual abuse, for homophobia, uh, big time for homophobia. So, and I'm, I don't know if I'm forgetting anything else, but if I am, I will add those in later. Okay, so I want to get into a, a big part of this story and a big reason why I think it's so important that there were other people involved in this and not just Ryan Murphy, because I think he does not tackle race issues very well. But I think this one did a better job than anything else Ryan Murphy has ever been involved in, honestly. 
so I want to talk about that, about how the show tackles race issues and then also just ba- basic representation within the movie. I mean, yes, it is based on a true story, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily get everything right all the time. So I want to talk about that because, of course, the movie opens up with, and this is where that trigger warning comes in, with the video of um, the beating of Rodney King, which, of course, you know, there was that was that took place in the early 90s. And when those police officers got off, which, um, which, of course, sadly, as we all know, is the norm that, of course, set off uh, the riots in L.A. And so a lot of people have proposed and said, and if Tiff wants to share her thoughts on this, too, feel free to have said that that's a lot of the reason why part of the reason why OJ might not have been convicted was because people were worried about that. And also in response to the fact that the cops got off. So a lot of people have said that as they've analyzed this through the years. So how do you think it handled all of that? It was interesting that they, that they opened with that scene because I think they were setting up the link between essentially black subjugation versus the LAPD, which if you don't know, and I, I live right outside of LA and LAPD is one of the most racist, corrupt police departments in the country. California is not necessarily the bastion of liberalism that people think it is. Um, There are a lot of white supremacists in police departments up and down the coast, uh, the sheriff's department as well. There's been documented cases of um, in the LA County Sheriff's Department of gangs of of white sheriffs and deputies uh, that target communities, um, Latino communities, Black communities, um, sometimes Asian communities as well. So people have to realize that, that this is part and parcel and linked up to how uh, OJ was treated in here. And then another thing is Rodney King did set off the uprising in LA. And there was a reason that they had that trial against those cops in the Valley. Now, you know, I'm just going to give you a brief overview. There is LA and it is huge. Part of the Valley is San Fernando Valley. San Fernando Valley is white, 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 white. Now this happened in LA. This happened in South LA. The trial should have been in downtown LA. They managed the defense managed to get this trial moved to San Fernando Valley. So they had an all white jury. <clears throat> when we heard that they had an all white jury, we knew they were getting off. We, it, we knew, I think everybody knew it wasn't, it wasn't a, even a, it didn't matter that there was video evidence, um, no matter how grainy it was, uh, it, it, that didn't matter. We knew they were getting off. This was different because OJ the the murder trigger warning of Nicole Brown and and Ron Goldman happened in Beverly Hills, which is which is L.A. Um, so to have the trial in L.A. Superior Court, which is downtown, was important because you had a mixed jury. You had, you know, black people on the jury, Asian people. Latino people, not just white people, had they moved it to San Fernando Valley like they did with those cops with Rodney King, 
we could have had an entirely different, we would have had an entirely different outcome, entirely different. I can pretty much guarantee you as a lifelong resident of <laughs> LA County, I can guarantee you it would have been a completely different verdict. So um, I like the fact that they put that in there. I like that because there is a link to it. There's there's definitely a link to it. And it was an important link, even if you don't know the, the history of, of LAPD uh, and with communities of color, you, you know, especially black communities. Uh, not that OJ was a part of the black community because he wasn't. He wasn't. There's a famous saying that he that he says and they use it in the series. I'm not black. I'm OJ. And he thought that way. He thought that way, you know. Absolutely. His entire social world was white. It, it was white. He lived in Beverly Hills. He frequented uh, Brentwood. He was all, always on like the west side of L.A., which is primarily white. Um, that was his that was his social center. So when he said that, you knew what type of person he was. And I think he probably thought that. That was what was going to get him off. The fact that white people loved him so much. But that wasn't necessarily the case. <laughs> it was more it was more logistics that got him off. I think that's that played a larger part in that. So I don't know we'll get into um, you know what we think about what actually happened. I know we'll talk about that too. Yeah. So I'll just end that there. <laughs> And I didn't don't know a lot as much I do now more from studying and watching things ab about the LAPD. Um, and so I think it is important as well. I agree. I think it was important that they opened it that way. And right at the same time that this came out was, um, oh my gosh, how am I forgetting the name of that docuseries? Remember that docuseries about um, made in, was it made in America? OJ's was it? About yes. That? The one on ESPN. Yes. That one, yes. which was excellent. That, that, one, that was excellent. Documentary. Phenomenal, phenomenal documentary. And I really recommend watching that as well as kind of a, almost, you could watch it as a companion piece of this, I guess, but it's, but it also goes deeper into other things and it, it goes into OJ before he became famous a little bit. And then OJ before uh, the murders and, and stuff. And it's just really good, really good documentary. And I do think it was essential that they did open the movie up, this movie up with that, with that scene, with showing the videotape, with showing the beating. Um, I think that was essential. And, you know, I, you know, I think it was also essential in this to show, and we'll be getting into that this a little bit later on, but to show, the different reactions to the verdict at the end um, and the real reactions, because those were real reactions they were showing. They showed videotape from that, like showing um, when Oprah broadcast in her audience and then showing also outside and everything like that. I, I think that was very important to show that too, because in case you weren't around during that time, that is the way it was. I mean, I was in high school and we'll get into where we were when this happened. This was, literally all anyone talked about. It was everywhere. This was really was the trial of the century because everybody was talking about it. And, you know, the thing is, is that, at, you know, because the movie is so much about the trial and not about OJ, that's the way it was in real life too. This was about a lot more than OJ. 
I think a lot of this was also, I think moving the trial was a moving where the trial was to downtown LA was really a good idea was exactly what they needed to do. And they knew why they were doing that because they also didn't want to have um, the prosecutor's office also was very much like, or the district attorney was like, we can't have it here because they're going to, I'm going to get attacked again. I'm going to be called a racist. I'm going to be all. So he's like, we have to move it down there. But yeah, I think that played a major role in it. I think it was also just a lot of other things that just, you know, they show on here about how hard it was to be on that jury and to be sequestered away for so long and how this became such a media event. And, you know, because you've also got fame involved in this too, as far as like, and not just because of OJ, but you also have, because you had cameras involved in it so much that you had a lot of that coming into the forefront. It was almost like a reality television show. Sadly, that's what it kind of turned into. But yeah, it's very important because race is a part of this no matter what. I mean, just looking historically, you know, at the way this country has treated black men when there has ever been a crime against white women, especially and white women, we've, of course, through the years, used our white tears as a way to get away with things too. And I'm not at all saying that for Nicole Brown. I'm not saying that that's what she was doing. I'm just saying that that is a reality in this country that we don't talk about enough or look at enough. And I do think with OJ, since he was so involved and he was just in a white world, that he didn't think he was part of that system. And he was part of that system. And I think he really, you know, you even see in this, and I think that, and I'm trying to remember back from the trial, that's the way OJ looked. But at the end, when you have one of the jurors, you know, he holds up his fist and in solidarity, you know, the black power symbol, and he holds that up. And then OJ kind of looks like he doesn't know what he (laughs) to react to that. And that's how you can see that he's so distanced from reality. He's lived in this bubble that he's created for himself and didn't realize or or had forgotten or had thought he was above racism. He thought he was above that. Like he was, he's, I'm not black. Like he said, he's OJ. So I think it was very important to put that in there. And once again, watch that documentary because that documentary is incredible and really amazing. And you'll learn a lot, seriously. And I think it should be a companion to this. If you're going to watch this, I think you should also watch that because it fills in a lot of gaps as well. And so we've already sort of touched on the LAPD, but I want to talk about that a little bit more, especially Mark Furman, who is a complete and utter scumbag. And he's a racist. He's a Nazi. He's a, he co- collected Nazi paraphernalia. I'm sure he still has it. But he, of course, has gone on to be like a contributor on Fox News. So once again, that should tell you again what Fox News is all about, uh, if you didn't already know. Um, but Mark Furman, when his testimony came along, that was also a big thing, I think, that helped with the not guilty verdict for sure, because that was the other thing. That's that's another way you could see sort of the racial divide here with this, where you've got Marsha Clark is like, no, we're just going to put him on the stand. He was there. We have to put him on the stand. And Chris Darden, as a black man, is like, uh, we can't do this. This guy is, <laughs> he knew what he was. He knew he was a racist. And he kept saying it and no one would listen to him, which was so hard to watch that. But I want to get your, you've already talked a little bit about the LAPD, but your thoughts on that and um, and how they handled that in here. I think probably Marsha Clark thought that it doesn't matter what his character is in terms of Furman, 
that he was a witness to the scene Mm -hmm. after the fact. So we have to use him because he was a witness to that scene. So it doesn't matter that he is entirely problematic. As you said, he is a neo-Nazi. He is a flaming white supremacist. Mm -hmm. He is a racist. Everything. He's a fascist. Everything that you could, every ist that you could attach to this guy, he is. And her viewpoint is very narrow in this. She wasn't looking at the bigger picture, whereas Chris Darden knew there is no possible way we can use this man because the defense, especially Johnny Cochran, is going to shred him to pieces. He has no credibility. He has no honesty. He has no integrity. And that is exactly what happened. That is exactly what happened. You find out, you know, he's planning evidence and he's lying. He's perjuring himself on the stand. He's doing all of these things. And it's exactly what Chris Darden was afraid of. That's the exact reason, you know, you think that, okay, Marsha Clark knows what she's doing, but in this, she did not know what she was doing. She did. She absolutely did not. And she should have deferred her experience to Chris Darden's experience as a black man living in LA. She should have listened. And that was her bad. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. There, and there were a couple of other moments I think where she did that too, where she didn't listen and didn't want to listen and wanted to be. And, and I think Marsha Clark is an amazingly intelligent person and did an incredible job but she's limited in her scope as a white woman. She's limited in her viewpoint and she should have listened. I mean, that's why she, I mean, she honestly, the reason she put Chris Darden on the team, the reason they wanted Chris Darden on the team is because they wanted to have a black man on their team as well. Since there was Johnny Cochran on OJ's team. So that was a lot of the reason they did, but like he even says has in there. And I don't know if this was really a line that he really used in real life, but, or that Chris Darden really said in real life, but, I know he says in there, you know, you just wanted me to be here because I'm a black man. You just wanted me to be on this because of that. But you didn't want to use my help. You didn't want to use me. Um, You didn't want to have me be a part of the team. And you can see that he struggles with that a lot and with that confidence and that self-confidence in there. And especially in the face of Johnny Cochran, which we've already talked about that before. But yeah, I think that was, was, you know, you have those moments where, you know, Johnny Cochran plays to that and specifically looks at Chris Darden and specifically talks to Chris Darden uh, with this, with Mark Furman, especially. And yeah. And when Mark Furman gets up there and pleads the fifth to everything, that's when, you know, I mean, you know, when people plead the fifth to something, I mean, this is just my personal opinion. I don't know if this is your astute diff, but whenever I see someone plead the fifth to something, I'm like, okay, well then you're guilty. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. That's just. (laughs) It's like, you're not incriminating yourself. So we know you did something to incriminate yourself. (laughs) I know. I'm like, um, that's always gotten me about that. I'm like, uh, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the scene with, wasn't it, um, Kato, Kaylin, who was, who was pleading the fifth and they're like, there's nothing you need to plead the fifth. Exactly. <laughs> oh gosh, Kato Kalen. Oh, <laughs> that yeah. was another way. That was another one that, that just completely. <laughs> this a... this trial had so many different characters. It in did. It. It, you know, it made people famous who 
did not need to see a like a hint of fame because they <laughs> they tried to just it, I mean it's capitalism at work right capitalism one hundred and one with with Cato Kalin with Judge Lance Ito oh my goodness there's no way a judge should be famous <laughs> there's, there's absolutely no way unless you're Judge Judy that's the only one who should be famous. <laughs> Or what was it, Judge Wappler? Wasn't that the person? Yes, yes, People's the People's Court. court. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, I remember it was like the Tonight Show or something where they had the dancing Edos. So they had yes. the dance, dancing. That's what it was. This this became like not only just the trial of the century, but the reality show of the century. Mm-hmm. It almost became like a circus. It was. It was. It was. Yeah. It was like oh, that's why you know the scene after the verdict. And you've got the district attorney speaking, you've got Marsha Clark, and then you've got Chris Darden. And when Chris Darden starts speaking and he breaks down and yes. he hugs uh, Ron Goldman's father right. and collapses, I mean, that was like heartbreaking because you could tell they they felt so much guilt over this. It took what a toll. Happened. Mm-hmm. It definitely took a toll. And I think especially it took a toll on uh, Chris Darden um, because I think he did feel that he was probably put in there for optics, mm-hmm. you know, like you said that they didn't necessarily want him for his expertise. He was put in there to show that, Hey, we can be objective about this. We have a black guy on our team. Yeah. Can't you see it? So I, that, that was hard to watch that ending with, uh, with what Brown Goldman's uh, Fred Goldman, right? Yeah. I think that's his yeah, name, I think Fred. That's his name, yeah. Um, that that was hard because he did he just collapses and just like you know it's it's a total breakdown of his of his psyche it's a total breakdown of his emotional um, his emotional output and it it like that hurt my heart to see that you know and I I'm trying to remember did they show that like in real life that's what I was trying to remember too I was, I'm trying to rack my brain yeah. To, to, to remember if they, and I remember him standing next to Fred Goldman. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. remember him like hugging him and, and breaking down. So I, it could have possibly happened. So you'd have to probably comb the footage, uh, yeah. the real life footage to see if it did. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was, I was like, well, I'm sure that probably happened since they're show they're showing this. I'm sure that's the way it happened. But, but I also was like, did it really happen? I couldn't remember either. Yeah. I couldn't remember either. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, let's get into a little bit lighter here of the fact that they did play up a lot in this and that this was something that people talked about a lot when they were watching it of this supposed romance, blooming romance between Chris Darden and Marsha Clark. And I want to say Paulson and Brown have the most amazing chemistry. Oh my gosh, they have great chemistry. So I think that's why this really worked too. So what do you think of that, of them putting that in there and putting a lot of focus on that and how they handled that? I think they handled it well because you stress puts people in a position to cling to the person that they're next to. Mm-hmm. And they, they were working 
nonstop, you know, 24 seven on this trial. So they were always in each other's orbit. And that does put somebody in your sight line. And I mean, they were, they were both single, you know, they were both consenting, I suppose. And I didn't, I, I think it was done really well because it showed that they needed another person. Um, that they needed to have that emotional connection with somebody else. Now, did this happen in real life? Eh. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I don't know if it really happened in real life. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as I know, Marsha Clark has never said anything about that. Chris Darden has never said anything about that. So it's possible that they just took creative license and, um, and just kind of placed this in there. But I don't think, even if they did take creative license with it, I don't think that it's a bad thing. Because like I said, you know, it's the emotion of it all. It's the stress of it all. It's the heaviness of it all to 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 want to grab onto somebody's hand and mm-hmm. say, you know, hey, I'm here with you. I need you to be here with me. Let's just hold each other and uh, and let's get through it together. So I like the way they handled it. And like you said, uh, you mentioned before we started <laughs> How oh, such a bad flirt! Oh my <laughs> god! <was>. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just a disaster <laughs> when it came to flirting. No game whatsoever. <laughs> I know. I know. When they were went back to his hometown and they're walking back to their hotel, <laughs> and she's clearly like. You can, you know, come back to, I mean, she's clearly giving him all these signals and he knows he's blown it. (laughs) She's ready and willing. And he's just, he's so awkward. He's just, it's just (laughs) awkward.com when it comes to Chris Darden. Like you have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea how to talk to a woman. Yeah, and she's just like giving him hint after hint. And then when she goes into her hotel room and closes the door slowly, and then you see him outside, they're just like, oh man, I'm just. Because <laughs> even his friends were all telling him, um, if you're going to do anything, this is the time to do it. Exactly. Exactly. And he just, I mean, he just blows it. <laughs> yeah. He just blows it completely. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I will say I, I loved watching them together and their chemistry was amazing. And and during the award season after this, because, you know, they all were winning, being nominated and all that. And you could tell that they really lo- liked each other a lot and they got along well in real life as well. And that I think translated on screen. Um, I do think Sterling A. Brown can have chemistry with, has chemistry with pretty much anybody. <laughs> He's one of those actors who he can have chemistry with a paper bag kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's part of it. But also they just really worked well together. And even though as as a viewer and my little romantic heart, I did kind of want them to get together. There was a part of me that was like, just kiss at least. Even though I knew that was going to happen, I knew that wasn't the point of the story. But there was that part of me that was like, you have such great chemistry. I just want to see that. Uh, but I'm glad in a way they didn't do that, though, because I think that would have been a little bit trashy to have had like them have sex or to sh- have shown that. I think they showed it just the right amount of time there. And, yeah, they haven't. I don't think either of them have spoken about that, I think. Or at least they've kind of just said no comment. <laughs> uh, but I think, you know. If you're in that kind of situation, like you said, you're in that high stress situation, you have somebody else who's going through it with you, you are bound to kind of have a connection there. 
And I think above all, they had at least what they showed on here, they had a great friendship and a great rapport, even though they did have some times where they didn't agree and they butted heads and that kind of stuff. But overall, you know, they helped each other. I think they helped each other survive this situation, get through this situation. And I think they were very important for each other and they were very good sounding boards and just someone that they could let off steam with at the end of, you know, have a drink with that kind of thing. And so I really liked watching their relationship and watching their friendship. And I think it was kind of essential to have that with them and to have to show that. And of course, you see a lot of Marsha Clark as well with, you know, she's struggling going through a divorce at this time, fighting for custody of her children. And so she's got stressor upon stressor upon stressor. She's also dealing with a lot of sexism. I want to say there was a lot of sexism. I mean, her hair alone, the way her hair was talked about and the scene after she gets her hair done and she walks into the court and Sarah Paulson did such a good job with this. And she walks into the courtroom and she gets all these snide looks and people are just judging her and you see her breaking down a little bit and cr crying and Oh, that was so sad. And then that was another reason it was so important to have Chris Darden there too. And then Chris Darden just, you know, whispering, I think you look great. I think it looks amazing. Even though maybe he doesn't think that, but, but it was nice that she had that, but that was really hard to watch because she was someone that wasn't looking for fame either, but then she just got wrapped up in this. And yeah, that was sad. The sexism. She was on the cover of People. She was on the cover of like Time and all of these other uh, publications that dedicated articles to her hair. And yep. yes, did she look sort of like a poodle? Yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> was it my favorite look? No, it wasn't. I don't know why somebody would say, hey, put a curly perm in my hair. This is going to look amazing. I'm not sure why she would go that route, but <laughs> it was her choice to do that. But yeah. for her to, I mean, for people to write like a dissertations on her hair was instead of how she was doing in the trial was just, I mean, kind of blew my mind. And then when she, you know, when she got the hair straightened and, you know, she comes in looking like more modern, mm -hmm. more with the times, uh, because it, I mean, the, the curly perm did make, it was dated and it, it didn't make her look, it, it was not a good look for her, no. you know? And so when she got it straightened and she comes in and she's looking like, okay, confident and, you know, more to, more put together, essentially, you can see kind of the tide shift. People are like, huh, okay. Marcia, <laughs> you're looking much better, <laughs> but yeah. she still gets talked about, you know, it's, it still True. gets talked about when she changed the hair up. So it's like, you can't win for losing. It's mm -hmm. uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. It, it, I just found that incredibly interesting. Uh, and I'm glad they put that in there because it was, a, it was a big, big part. People are probably, you know, people that weren't there, you know, our younger listeners are like, are you serious? Are you kidding me? It was. But it was, it was, it was a big part of it. Um, and it was, like you said, a ton of sexism wrapped in mm -hmm. a ton of misogyny to have a woman leading the prosecution. You, you know, there were people that thought that, hey, you know, why didn't the district attorney take this on himself? as opposed to giving it to Marsha Clark. You know, they thought it was a big enough trial where the district attorney should 
take this on and be the lead prosecutor. But, you know, I mean, he had enough confidence in Marsha Clark to do it. She was, I mean, she had a ton of experience. So that, you know, uh, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that had to be hard to be up there as, as a woman dealing with that and dealing with the sexism of that and dealing with, the fact that it's also her job that she loves is also being used against her by her ex-husband to try and get custody of her children, which she eventually won that. But still, it's just, I mean, that's got to be very, very difficult to deal with. And, you know, you have on top of that, uh, you're dealing with a case that also involves domestic violence. And when you're dealing with that, you already have issues there where, you know, you have people already wanting to attack the victim and to call out their their background. And it's always tough to prosecute those kind of cases, I think, because it does run into that sexism. It does run into that, well, what did the woman do to deserve this? And that kind of stuff. Just the same with like sexual assault. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, we both have already spoken about how we remember <laughs> this trial and this time. So I want to talk about that and sort of our, our personal thoughts on the verdict and our personal thoughts on everything that surrounded this. So do you remember, I mean, not only just the trial, but do you remember where you were during the Bronco chase? I do. It was okay. So <laughs> this is, we're weirdos here in, in LA. <laughs> we're, we're total weirdos because they put on anytime there's a car chase, they put it on like they, they do breaking news and they put it on and we sit there, we're glued to the TV because it's so, it's so hilarious. Uh, and it's so funny because they always end in the most ridiculous manners. So when I, it was after school, I remember that. So I was in the sixth or seventh grade. I think I was in the seventh grade, seventh grade. So it was after school. I was at my grandparents' house and they did uh, the, the NBA finals were on and it was game two, I believe. And I remember this because they cut into to the finals. <laughs> <laughs> they cut into the finals and we're missing the game. You know, there's, <laughs> they didn't like put it in the corner or anything like that. They, they totally cut it out. And we see this white Bronco and they're like, it looks like his, uh, his friend Al Cowlings is driving. And, it's just following, you know, it's a slow speed chase. They're going like, you know, 50 miles an hour. It's not a high speed chase. And they're just driving. <laughs> they're just, they're just <laughs> driving. <laughs> and it just lasts forever and ever and ever. I was like, can they please go back to the finals? It's like, I want to watch the basketball game. <laughs> we just wanted to watch the basketball game. <laughs> and they didn't. They never went back. <laughs> it's just... They just kept following the stupid Bronco <laughs> up and down the 405. Yep. And it's just, uh, yeah. So I know exactly where I was because I was mad that they cut into the finals because I'm a big basketball fan and I was upset that I didn't get to fight that finals game because of this dumb Bronco. <laughs> <laughs> and if, you're right. It wasn't much of a chase. It really no. was just it was like a drive. It was just like a stroll. It, it was. was. It was like this, you know, this this very leisurely drive on the freeway. Yeah, just, almost like a parade. Just so boring. So boring. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's, and I remember I would always get upset because uh, this would, you know, everything would always interrupt. I would, I'm a soap person, and these would always interrupt my soaps because I'd be recording my soaps. I was in, you know, high school and stuff, like early on, and it was like that was what I'd watch after school because we had VCRs and record them, and I'd be upset because I never had to watch my soap. <laughs> so that was kind of my my thing, uh, but it was like this. You know, it sounds weird saying, but it was exciting, uh, you know, in a way, even though the Bronco chase, which it really wasn't a chase, as we've said, it really wasn't at all. It was almost like being escorted, uh, was like this exciting. I think everybody kept expecting something to happen. Something was going to happen and nothing happened. But I think everybody was expecting like some big thing to happen, you know, and, you know, they were waiting for something, waiting for a high speed chase, waiting for probably really what people were waiting for was some death. I mean, honestly, if we're being honest, um, and that didn't happen, of course. So they yeah. kept speculating that OJ had a gun mm -hmm. to his head in the car, which I don't think they ever really confirmed that. I think they just kept saying, uh, we're getting word that OJ is yeah. holding a, a gun to his head and he's telling Al Collins to you know, keep driving, keep driving. And then Al Collins was, you know, trying to talk him down from, uh, from, you know, potential suicide, I guess. Um, but I don't think that was actually confirmed whether or not he actually had that gun to his head. I think he might've just had a firearm, but who knows whether or not, because I don't think Al Collins has ever said that. Um, yeah. So I, it's one of those things where I think they were just trying to spice it up a bit. Mm -hmm. you know, the helicopters and all that kind of stuff. And I remember like the, the, uh, the helicopter pilot, and this was a made, this was OJ made in America, uh, the ESPN docuseries. Uh, the helicopter pilot that was like the main follower, like did it from mm -hmm. start to finish uh, following the Bronco is actually a trans woman. You know, I'm just throwing that tidbit out there because, you know, OJ Made in America said it. So, um, but that, that, that person at the time was not. And mm -hmm. so you hear the differential between the two and it's just kind of an interesting thing. It's just kind of a, huh. a tidbit of information. I, f I forgot that because I've watched the documentary, but I forgot that bit. Yeah, and then let's talk about the trial because it was the trial of the century. We already said it was like watching a reality show. It was like, I mean, it was just, this really was everything. Nobody talked about anything else, really. Honestly, this, I mean, if you weren't, you know, if you were a little, little kid or you weren't alive during this time, you got to just stress that this was like everything. This dominated the news, this dominated every late night show, this dominated every sitcom during that time would have some kind of thing that would refer to this. I think even dramas had it. It was just inundated. We were just inundated with this. This was, it was all about this. What was your experience like watching that? Like, do you remember watching it? Did you watch a lot of the trial or? They would play it. Um, I don't know if you remember uh, or if your school had it. So the trial started, I was in high school when the trial started. And they had channel one uh, in the classrooms. Like, so you would watch channel one in homeroom. And um, so channel one would give us the update on and the rundown of everything that was happening in the trial uh, from what happened that day, the, you know, the day before to what they expected to happen uh, on the day that 
we were in class, you know, so if it was if it was Tuesday, they gave a rundown of what happened on Monday and what they think is going to happen today. Who's on the, the witness list? Um, what can we expect? What what is Judge Ito going to you know strike down or strike from the record? So we were pretty up to date with things that were going on. And this is I mean, we had Internet, of course we did. You know, this is like 95. So we did have Internet. But it wasn't like we could just Google stuff. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. So Channel One was like my primary source of information of what was going on. So I got kept up to date with that, which, uh, you know, I mean, I don't even know. Do they have Channel One in high schools now? I'm not sure. Exactly. I don't know a lot. Of, I don't know. Well, my, my niece is starting high school, so I guess I'll find out from her. <laughs> But yeah, it was something you talked about in high school. You watched in certain classes. You might watch, I think, I'm trying to remember if we, because I went to a very different kind of high school. I've spoken about before. I went to more like an arts high school. But I believe we did, like, I, I think in my history class, I think for some reason, we would watch it in there or discuss it the day after. And like I said, it was always interrupting my soap. <laughs> so. So I would watch it later on the VCR and stuff, but I was, I was into it too, because I used to want to be a lawyer. I, I, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer mainly because it, because I wanted to be able to give those big speeches that I saw on television. I didn't want to do the other stuff. I just wanted to be there in the courtroom and do those big speeches. Not the research part. No. None of that. Just the opening statement and the ending statement. Yes. I was like, isn't that the fun part? I just want to do that. Because it was like acting to me. It was like, you know, acting. Uh, So I always, so I found it fascinating for that, you know, and this was definitely something that even though there were a lot of moments where you're like, I don't understand what's going on. This is kind of boring. But then there would be moments, of course, with the glove, that was like one of the big, big moments. And that last afterwards, I mean, the line, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, was said for years and years. I mean, I think it's still said now, uh, but that was a very famous moment. And I know for a lot of people, when that happened, a lot of people went, well, then there's no way that he did it. I mean, really in the public eye, a lot of people believed that was definitely solid enough evidence to show that there's no way OJ did it. Uh, because they did that so well with the way they were playing up to the cameras, not just to the jury, but to the jury of public opinion, really, was what they were also playing that to. So, yeah, that was, I mean, it was just, it really was everywhere. There was no escaping this. It was like nonstop. It felt like it went on forever, but it was still this nonstop thing. Yeah. It, it was theater. It, it was. It, 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 mm-hmm. it was theater. You know, I mean, the way Johnny delivers that line it, it, that was acting that was, it, was. A, it was a performance you know mm-hmm. if it doesn't fit you must quit yeah. and, and what people didn't realize i think at the time yes you're seeing him struggle to put this glove on right you're mm-hmm. he's like he's he's pulling on it and and you know kind of like trying to wiggle his fingers trying to show that he can't get it on they didn't clean that glove no that glove was not clean so the glove had blood caked on it it had dried up. Mm-hmm. When that happens, leather shrinks. You know, leather gets tough. It's not worked. So that glove was never going to really go on his hand. That didn't mean that it didn't fit. 
Yeah. <laughs> that, that is what people didn't realize. <laughs> that, that didn't mean that that glove wouldn't have gone on had the leather been reworked. But that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And later on after the trial, there'd be a lot of people that would say that. And, you know, but that was never really, as far as I remember, mentioned in the trial. I mean, no, which, which was a bad thing, really. <laughs> it surprised me that the, that the prosecution didn't go into that further that you, I mean, have a, have an expert on leather, have an expert on glove making and how, you know, and have gloves um, that it draws up when, when it gets wet or when it gets some type of liquid on it. Just, I mean, yeah. it, it boggled my mind that that was not, even back then I was like, are you sure? <laughs> are you positive that this glove is not fitting because it got liquid on it? I, if I, as like a 14 year old, 15 year old could realize that, how did the prosecution not realize that? It was one of those things yeah. that, that didn't ever make sense to me. Like, uh, like common sense, essentially. They had book smarts, but not much common sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I also remember, and they didn't really talk about this in, in the movie, but I also remember that there was a time when they were trying to steer the conversation towards, they were saying that um, OJ's older son might have had something to do with this too. I remember that too. And they didn't put that in the movie, but uh, that was, that was also an interesting thing because they were trying to just kind of, you know. Yeah. There's a, there's a book about that, that, that went into a lot of detail. Um, and I have to say it was kind of convincing because um, they were talking about his son was his older son. Uh, if people don't realize OJ has older kids uh, from his first marriage uh, and he was married to a black woman. And they said the son was a violent schizophrenic, that he had these giant like uh, Bowie knives, knives that could essentially decapitate somebody, which uh, trigger warning, if you didn't know Nicole Brown was essentially decapitated, uh, which they show also trigger warning. They show yeah. that in OJ Made in America. So if you do watch that, uh, just be prepared because I was unprepared for that. I, I mean, even like, you know, 20 years down the line, I had no idea that she was basically decapitated. Ron Goldman, I don't think he was. I think he was just so. stabbed multiple times and essentially, you know, you go into shock from blood loss. They said, yeah. So they say that his older son had a very contentious relationship with Nicole Brown. It's convincing. You know, if you if you read it, mm -hmm. it, it's it's very convincing to think that okay, this could possibly have been something that went on. But it's funny that the pro that the defense team never never really mentioned that, and mm -hmm. that could have been from you know a desire, like some, I guess OJ wanting to protect his oldest, you know, one of his older kids. Yeah. But he never seemed like the type of parent that would that would really do that. He always had it like, to me, he seems like no, he has I a agree. sense of, sense of self-preservation. And like, oh, if he could throw his kid under the bus, he would definitely throw his kid under the bus. So I don't know. I don't I, know. It's just one of those, one of those theories that people threw out. Yeah. I agree about, about OJ because I mean, he wrote a whole book saying, if I did it, this is, <laughs> I mean, basically a whole book saying, if I did it, this is how I did it. I mean, that's like, that tells you what kind of person he is to write yes. that. Gonna, okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's a reason why his, his younger kids, the kids that he had with Nicole Brown, why they don't have a relationship with him. 
there's absolutely a reason for it. So yeah, take that with what you will. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about that, the verdict, uh, when the verdict came down, because that was a moment everybody tuned in. I mean, you did, you stopped what you were doing. We did that. We were like, everybody was watching the television when that happened. And then I remember also watching the Oprah show afterwards. I remember watching that later on. And uh, so what were your feelings when, when that happened? Do you remember where you were and all that stuff? And your- I was in, I was in high school. I was a sophomore in high school. They stopped class. They turned on the TV and we're sitting there and it's silent. I mean, like you can hear a pin drop. And I went to a high school. I was a Catholic high school. And it was like probably about 75% white and about 25% (laughs) Asian. And then, you know, whatever that little percentage is left, uh, there were only a handful of black kids. So I was the only black kid in that classroom. And they're playing that verdict and every head turns to me. Every single head turn to me. It's like when they start talking about slavery in a history class and everybody looks at the black kids, you know, Mm -hmm. I felt extremely uncomfortable and I didn't even know. And this is before they even said anything, but I felt uncomfortable. I felt like very, uh, like a lot of stress, a lot of heaviness. I'm like, why are they stop looking at me? I don't (laughs) like, I don't want to be looked at. Um, and then the, uh, the, the bailiff is reading or the court, the court, uh, clerk, is reading it off. And remember, she gets the name. She stumbles over his name. Mm-hmm. Or, 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 and then she, she straightens up and says, you know, Orenthal James Simpson. And in my head, I was thinking like, oh, his name sounds like orange juice. Because <laughs> I, <didn't, laughs> I didn't know his name was Orenthal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I knew, it, I, knew it st- I knew OJ stood for something, but I didn't know it was Orenthal. And I'm just thinking in my head, I was like, oh, that sounds like orange juice. That's funny. And so, and so uh, you know, the jury, the jury finds you not guilty. And it was just like, <laughs> you know, and I mean, every head's looking at me, every head's looking at me, everybody's like, <gasps> you know, I mean, just a collective gasp. And then like, it's, it's just like 25 kids talking at one time. Like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. Blah, 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 blah. And I just felt like for the rest of the day, cause that was of course in the morning, I just felt like for the rest of the day that I was being stared at. Mm-hmm. Like I did, I felt, and I, I think, I don't think that I was imagining it. I think they were all looking at all, like all the black kids to see what our response would be. And I made sure like to keep my face very blank. Like I didn't want anybody to know like what I thought about it and, and what my true feelings on it were. I just wanted to keep that personal and private to myself. I was very conflicted about it. Like I felt, I felt like a conflict within myself about it because on one hand it's like, eh, stick it to the LAPD, stick it to the system, you know, because even, even at that age, I had a, an idea of systemic racism and how the system was built up against black people. Um, so on one hand, I'm like, yeah, okay, <laughs> it's cool. Uh, somebody actually got away with it. But then I was like, oh my gosh, that's terrible to say. Somebody actually got away with it. <laughs> so I felt very, yeah, I was very, very conflicted over it. But I tried not to show it. I tried not to show that, you know, how con- how conflicted and how confused I felt over my feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a, uh, it was like 
a bonkers time. It was bananas how how that that trial and how that verdict made people react because you saw like you saw a a breath of emotional uh, outbursts for uh, for how that that shook down. Yeah, we watched it in in class too, and I remember you know because I always believed that OJ was guilty. I believed OJ was guilty from the very beginning. And I remember watching that and just being shocked. But at the same time, I think by that time, because it felt so much like a reality show and so much like a performance that I almost wasn't surprised, even though it was kind of like, whoo, shocking. And I will say, you know, now looking back on it and, and you know, really watching it now and looking back and watching documentaries and and watching it from a different different lens you know at the time i was like i can't believe people are celebrating this i can't believe you know and that's coming from my white privileged mind i mean that's really where that's coming from i was like how can you celebrate this and you know and then if you really look at it and really you can understand i mean i can't understand of course but i can see why that would be cause for celebration and i know that um you know i've heard from a lot of people that even though they were celebrating it didn't necessarily even mean that they were celebrating oj it was more the fact that this is something that would not normally happen because it's not especially if you've got a black man and a white woman killed i mean that's just that doesn't happen that the that the black man would get released and would be you know would wouldn't be convicted that just is unheard of and of to my white privileged mind i didn't get that at all um, I do now understand why that would be celebrated. But at the time, I remember honestly feeling very kind of disgusted by that, to be honest, and feeling like, well, how can you celebrate this? Uh, but I think, you know, with looking at it and, and really, really researching and really looking into everything that was going on and looking into it further and realizing it wasn't about OJ. And I think that's what people didn't realize and probably still don't realize today um, because you know, OJ, <laughs> I mean, OJ, like you said, he was in the white world. He wasn't even, he didn't even want to be part of his own community. I mean, it wasn't even that he was in the white world. I think he really didn't even want to be part of his community. He never gave back ever. No, no, there was, I mean, there was, there was never a hint of him embracing where he came from. That was never, never. We're talking about a guy who turned his back on, you know, the black community as a whole and never looked back after it. I mean, it never, never made an attempt to, to be a part of the community. So, like you said, that celebration, the celebratory feeling was more so at the system than him. It wasn't, it had nothing, absolutely any, anything to do with OJ because we didn't claim him. <laughs> mm -hmm. He was not claimed. He was, he was not a part of us. And it was more so, yes, somebody, it, it, the system actually didn't catch somebody. Yeah. And, and like I said, because of my white privilege and my white, I did not understand that at all. I was like, oh, in my brain, I was like, oh, this is because OJ is famous. And so everybody wants the celebrity to get off. 
And, you know, that wasn't the case. And I just, you know, that's white privilege for you. I mean, and you have to examine that and, and, you know, realize that. And that's where I was coming from. And everybody around me was in the same, felt the same way. But it was a very interesting time because, you know, I I think, you know, the, the sad part for me always in cases like this, and I've talked about before when, you know, you, when you're watching any kind of true crime thing, and we'll talk about this a lot more when we're talking about the second part, a lot of times victims' voices are gone, the people that died. And even in this movie, you don't really see much about Ron Goldman or Nicole Simpson. Um, and that's the way a lot of the trial felt. And I'm sure for a lot of people that were victims of domestic violence, it was probably a different kind of feeling from that because it was like, okay, once again, the system isn't going to help me from from that. So it's, a, yeah, there's, there's a lot of sides to this, a lot of different things. And that's always been my struggle with, I, I'm a true crime person. I like watching true crime. I find it fascinating. I find and this, I mean, OJ's not a serial killer, but I find serial killers very interesting and fascinating. But I know there's always that struggle of if you're fascinated with that and with the murder, uh, what about the victims? You know, and there is a lot of injustice. Like we've talked before, uh, we talked about um, uh, the Paradise Lost documentaries and those murders and when they you know, were freed, even though they, they had to plead guilty to the crimes in order to be freed. And you kind of forget in that, I mean, there were little boys that were brutally murdered and assaulted in that case. And so it always was a struggle when you're watching that you want them to be free because of the injustice there. But at the same time, there's the victims and where are the victims' voices. So it's this internal internal struggle, which I think is much more prevalent in the second one we're going to be talking about than in this one, for sure. So I think we can move on to the other one, unless there's anything else you wanted to add with this one, Tiff. I, I just think it's one of the, the best miniseries that mm-hmm. I've ever seen. Um, if you've never seen it, for the uh, people who might have thought that, hey, it's nothing, you know, this is like, you know, from 20 years ago, it's not that great, blah, 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 blah. Just from the performances alone, give it a shot. It's a fast watch. Uh, I guarantee you, you will like it. <laughs> yeah, I rewatched it in like a day. <laughs> it was like, I mean, it's, it's, and it was good the second time. It was just as good the second time. Uh, and, you know, like we said, the performances are great. And that's why I said, once again, this was my favorite part of the Ryan Murphy thing was revisiting these because these are the best of them. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Um, So we're going to move on to American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. And like I said, this is actually a lot. It's not really about Versace. I want to say that if you've never watched this, and I remember when I watched it and I thought it was going to be more about that, you learn very, very quickly it's not. It's a character study, and it's all about Andrew Kanan, who, I mean, I remember when this happened, too. And this happened in the late 90s. And um, Versace was assassinated. It was murdered. was point blank on the steps of his place in Miami. 
by Andrew Cunanan, who had previously before this murdered four other people right before this had happened. He kind of, he he's considered a spree killer. I, you know, a lot of people debate whether he's a spree killer or a serial killer. I would call him a serial killer personally. Um, and then of course, trigger warning also for suicide because he does end up killing himself. Um, he was never captured. So no one really knows why he did this. So there's all these theories and this is kind of examining that. Um, so we're going to talk about this one. And this one is a lot harder to watch. I will say to people because the violence in this is extremely violent and extremely disturbing, very disturbing. So this is not as easy to watch as the OJ one. Um, I remember my mom tried to watch this one because she'd watched the OJ one and then she was moving on to this one and she made it through the, like the first one. And I told her, I'm like, mom, you cannot watch this. This is not your kind of thing. You're going to, you're going to, uh, -uh. Um, so this is a lot more horrific as far as what you see. Um, and the crimes that were committed. And the, there's a lot of homophobia in this. So a lot of trigger warnings for this one of just, you know, homophobia. Again, there are insinuations that there might've been um, child abuse, child molestation. There are, there is a lot of, you know, there's, you don't necessarily see sexual assault, but there are a lot of things that could kind of <laughs> veer into that area. And of course, like I said, horrific, horrific violence. The murders are just horrific absolutely horrific. So we're going to talk about that one now. We're going to that one. And what I want to start out with, like we started with the performances, we're going to first start out with Darren fucking Chris. Okay. I'm just going to say that I've already said this. We did a poll of the best performances in all of these. And I had put, I put Sterling K Brown and Sarah Paulson and then Darren Chris and then other, if you wanted to comment. And I will admit, I kind of swayed the polls a little bit because <laughs> it was tied. It was like this tie between uh, Sterling K. Brown and Darren Chris, And I just kind of <laughs> said, here's some video evidence of why. Because <laughs> I love Sterling K. Brown. But this performance, honestly, is one of the best performances I have ever seen, hands down. He is so incredible in this. So before I just take over and just spend the whole time gushing about him, <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get Tiff's opinion on Darren Chris in this. I, it's so far removed from him on Glee. When they, <laughs> when they announced it, you know, when they announced him, I was like, eh, I, no, I don't see it. You know, I don't see it because he's playing this very one note character on Glee. There's no uh, nuance. There is no uh, variety. It, it's very, it's very bland, you know, it, and it's funny because he's supposed to be like this kind of um, showboat character, you know, because he's in show choir. So he should be somewhat over the top and he's not, it, it, it's kind of, it's, it's boring. So when they announced it, um, I was like, they could have gone with somebody better. They could have done it. <laughs> you see him, <laughs> you see him in this and he gives you vulnerability he gives you creepiness. He gives you sadist. He gives you this enthusiasm for how he thinks people want to see him. He, he turns himself inside out to reflect how people, how he wants people to see him. It is a masterclass in performance acting. 
it is so, so good. <laughs> it mm -hmm. is so good. One of those performances that people will remember, you know, years and years down the line. And this is, you know, how far removed is are we from, from this one? It's been about, what, four or five years? I think it was like 2019 was when he started winning all the awards, but I think it came out in 2018 because he won like everything he could. He did. He won it. Yeah, he won Globe. He won the Emmy. Yeah, he he basically won everything. So it was uh, Screen Actors Guild, all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, so we're you know we're we're about three four years removed from when this played, and you know it's it's a performance that sticks with you. It's something that people will talk about, like you know uh, Kingsley Benadire in One Night in Miami as you know Malcolm X, uh, Margot Robbie in I Tanya, uh, Sidney Poitier in. Um, in the heat of the night, it's one of those things that you'll remember. It's going to stick with you, you know, and those are some of my, some of my favorite performances that, that actors have given um, shout out to, to those films. So if you want to watch those, watch those. <laughs> um, it's so good. It's so, so good. And I was so impressed with, with the breadth and scope of his acting because I didn't think he could give us that. I didn't think he had it in him. To be perfectly frank, I didn't. I didn't think he. I didn't think Darren Chris was that impressive. Sorry, Darren Chris. <laughs> um, this was the very first thing I'd ever seen Darren Chris do, so I want to say that. So that probably is why I actually love him in Glee. But it's probably because I just love him because I think he because I'd seen this first. I don't know if I had watched Glee first if I would have had the same feeling. I might have had the feeling that you did, Tiff. But I actually really like Tim and Glee. I think he's an amazing singer, too. I think he's got a great voice. But I just, he's just so incredible. And the reason I said Darren fucking Chris is I've instilled a new, I've decided we are going to have a new rule on here. And any one of the performances that Tiff also gave could also have put the F, in, F word in there, too. <laughs> um, but it's the Christian fucking bail rule where if any performance blows me away, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to put that as their middle name. And it, what Darren Chris does with this role, because he's playing someone who is not a likable person. He's a hor he was a horrible human being who viciously, viciously murdered people. I mean, viciously. And he, he is basically this whole thing pretty much. I mean, there are scenes that are not about him that don't show him, but this whole thing is revolving around him. It's a character study about Andrew Cunanan and, and trying to answer the question of why did he do this? Why did he assassinate Versace is really where the question begins. And then why did he murder the other people? And the other bigger question here too is why, well, we all know why, but why did the cops mess this up so badly? Why did the FBI screw this up so badly where he should not have been able to even get to that point where he assassinated Versace? Honestly, he should have been caught after the first murder, but you know, you know, the homophobia and other things played into that. But he's just, he has these moments in here. There's a moment in the very first episode, and this is when I knew this performance was going to be incredible, where it's after Versace has been assassinated. Because if you don't know, this story is told, and we'll talk about whether or not we thought this was a good idea. It's told out of order. It kind of goes backwards. So you start with the assassination, and then the next episode goes a little bit before that, and then the next episode before that, and the next, and so on, until the eighth episode, which I think is one of the best episodes in the series, is all about Cunanan's childhood and then his teen years. And then the ninth episode goes back to when he's hiding out on this houseboat and stuff. 
But in the very first episode, there's a scene he's he's gotten away and he's changed his clothes to kind of look like an, a parking attendant. I believe it was in this red outfit. And he goes into this really nice hotel because Cunanan always wanted these really nice things. He wanted to be part of society. And he goes in there and he's watching. All these people are watching the coverage, the news coverage of the, of, uh, the assassination. And he's watching this woman who is watching it and she covers her mouth in shock. And he looks at her and goes, okay, so this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You see it turn. And so he covers his mouth. But you see with his eyes that he's smiling. And it is one of the creepiest things I have ever seen because it's like, you know, he's trying to play at this part like he actually has any compassion or any humanity. And he's just he's getting off on this because this is what he wanted was this fame and wanted to be noticed. And he's getting this notice because of what he did. And watching that smile and you can see it in the way Darren Chris does that performance. And he has these moments where you see that you see that vulnerability in this character that you should not feel anything for. And I didn't feel anything for him. I mean, he scared me. He scared me so much. He was just so terrifying, but you did see those moments, those glimpses of, Maybe in some other timeline, he could have not been this person. Um, you saw there were these, this, maybe this pain in there somewhere. Um, and there's also, there's little moments, so many little moments throughout this. And I promise I won't spend the whole time talking about just his performance, but I can't help it. This really is one of my all-time favorite performances. I was more excited about this during the award season that year than anything else. Every time he won, I was just thrilled <laughs> because he deserved it. He deserved every award he won, honestly. And there's another moment in the second episode. And so he hasn't yet killed Versace and he's driving to to Miami and he's in this truck that he had um, taken from a man that he did shoot and kill that was his fourth victim and he's listening to the radio and there, there's a radio thing about you know manhunt for Andrew Cannon and then he changes it and the song Gloria comes on and he starts singing and trying to be like all loose and and the way he does it and he like sticks his head out the window and he's singing and he has another moment where he's singing in, in episode four as well and it's like he's like he's trying to be normal but he doesn't know how to be normal and he's trying to get rid of those nerves but he doesn't know how to get rid of those nerves so it's almost like watching this person who they've done all these horrible things at this point he's already murdered four people and he's like trying to still paint a pretty picture on it and almost treat it like he's on a road trip and like he's having a blast and he's having fun and he's singing. And, you know, right before that, you see where he's switching the license plates on the truck and this little girl is staring at him and he's like smiles at the girl. And it's so creepy. And she's just staring at him like, like you're creepy. And he's just smiling at her. <laughs> he's just, he does it. The smile he has in this is so creepy. And he's, he's a good looking man. But he's so unattractive in this because he's so creepy and so scary and little things he does when he dances, any little movement he does is just incredible. He just occupies this character so well. And I know that it, a lot of people, a lot of family members of his victims uh, in real life do not like this movie. I do want to say that they they are very upset about this. Versace's family doesn't like this. 
Um, I don't think any of the victims' families. And I was watching a clip, an interview with Darren Chris, and he was being asked this, and he said, "Well, no, I totally understand. I if I was." the victim's families, I wouldn't want to watch something that was all about the person who murdered my family member, because that's what this is all about. And I'm sure because I know the way people work, I'm sure there are a lot of people that actually sympathized with Andrew Cunanan and liked him in that way during watching this. You know, plus Darren Chris has a huge fan base. So because of Glee. So I'm sure there were a lot of that kind of crossover there, sadly. Uh, But his performance, though, is just, it's just, I mean, honestly, I think that's the main reason to watch this movie is to watch his performance, because it's incredible what he does with this character and how he can take someone who is a sociopath and instill a tiny bit of humanity or a tiny bit of trying to understand him not really humanity more vulnerability is what i want to say and the way he plays him when he's constantly lying and constantly making up things and just little looks he'll do and you'll see these little flashes of anger in his eyes or hurt in his eyes or something like that and it's, it's pretty it's pretty it's a pretty incredible thing to watch i mean really just absolutely amazing and it's not easy to watch i want to say that again it's not re-watching it while I loved watching his performance and I kind of, it's like just amazing. It still was really difficult to watch some of these episodes, some of the stuff he does to these, to these poor people, to his victims. It's just, it's, oh, it's disturbing. But I want to talk about that now. I want to talk about the fact that they did show this out of order, going back in time and focused on Kunan. And so I want to kind of combine these two questions. Do you think that was the right way to tell this story? I generally don't like non-linear things, whether it's a, whether it's a book, uh, whether it's a, you know, miniseries or a film, I kind of gets on my nerves at times because I'm like, come on, just tell it in order. I need it. My brain needs it. I think this actually works um, because you don't necessarily see his motivation. You don't know his motivation for killing Versace, for assassinating Versace. Uh, it, It just happened so quickly. You're like, what the deuce just happened? What, what's going on? And then we're backing up to see his other victims. And we still don't necessarily know what the motivations are for him doing this as well. We just know that this guy is, like you said, a sociopath, but where did it all begin? And then you finally get to his childhood and you see the, and this is not to excuse it. This is you know definitely not to excuse it because uh, other people face abandonment issues and, um, and poverty, uh, all of these things, homophobia, transphobia, whatever, you know, racism, whatever you want to, whatever ism you want to throw it or, or phobia you want to throw at somebody, other people have done it and have not turned out as sociopaths or serial killers. Um, so, but you do see how his childhood shaped how he acted as an adult because, it, you know, being abandoned by his father and being put in this position of poverty uh, with his mother, uh, you see why he he really places himself 
into situations where he can be, where he can feel like he is rich, you know, where this, uh, where he can have this like luxury lifestyle. You see how that at least plays into his psyche because he, because he didn't have any of these things as a kid. He had a very comfortable lifestyle while his father was around. Then when his father left, then they're placed into, you know, they're in this tiny apartment and they're struggling day to day. And as an adult, he's living, you know, he's trying to live this, this <laughs> lifestyles of a rich and famous, like Robin Leach said. So I think that's an important part of it. And I think in that, in that regard, the nonlinear format works. If had it not been nonlinear, well, had it been linear, I think that could have worked as well. If you have this buildup to, because obviously Versace was his most well-known victim. He was a famous designer. Everybody, you know, pretty much knew who Versace was. He had a, a huge presence in the fashion scene. Uh, so had they wrapped things up with that, with having the, the most well-known victim as the finale to his to his you know, his spree killings, uh, that could have definitely had a bigger impact, I think, than placing it in the in the front. But it's one of those things where it's so shocking that it happens in the beginning. It almost like I, you know, and I know you you love horror and I know you've seen Scream like yes. multiple times. It's kind of like it's the Drew Barrymore situation. You know, she was the most well-known person in that film and she gets knocked off in the first five minutes. And you're like, what? You know, what just happened? Like, <laughs> you're shocked. It's a shock yeah. to the senses. So in that manner, I do think that it works. I think the nonlinear format does work in that manner. But I can see how linear could have worked as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I'm not mad at it. I'll say that. I'm not mad at it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, you know, when I first watched it, I remember, cause I think I started it pretty soon after, um, OJ went, cause I streamed this on, on Netflix and I remember kind of being thrown by it at first and being like, Oh, okay. So we're going, cause in the second episode, I'm like, Oh, so he's not on the run in this truck. This is before he's even assassinated Versace. So it was kind of like this thing of trying to kind of, you know, get your bearings and know where you are. And then once you know what, what it's doing, it's it's a very interesting way, I think, to approach this story because you already know what he's going to become. So you don't have to follow him as he becomes that. You follow him as you kind of unravel the pieces of what might have gotten him to that point. But once again, like Tiff said, this is no excuse. You know, I've been abandoned. My father abandoned me twice. I, I'm not killing people, you know, so it's no it's no excuse at all. You know, and lots of people have suffered through homophobia, through racism, through abuse, and do not go out and murder people. So it's not an excuse at all for what he did. It's more just an understanding maybe where that came from. And his whole goal in life is to be somebody. He wants to be somebody. He wants to be known. And, you know, there is that argument to be made that even though he is not alive anymore, there are still people that are like this in the world that making a movie all about him and making him the center of it could, there could be an argument made that that's really dangerous to do because you are giving him exactly what he wanted. (laughs) Really? I mean, you have this, 
attractive movie star playing him. And so you are giving him a little bit of what he wanted. Uh, I found it more fascinating. I, I, you know, I, they, they do still have Versace in here throughout. You do see little moments. There are episodes where Versace is not in there at all, but there are moments where you do see Versace through the years and in the episode eight, which is where we learn more about um, Cunanan's childhood and stuff and his teen years. Uh, there is a little bit of Versace's childhood as well. And I think they were kind of trying to parallel it where, you know, if Cunanan had gotten this way, maybe he wouldn't have been like that or parallel it to the life that Cunanan had always wanted and Versace got it kind of thing. I think that was kind of the aim of having that. But it really is his story. It's Cunanan's story. It just is. And I think it was a very good way to tell the story. And I do agree. I think it would have worked the same way if it was linear. But I think doing it this way, it's almost like you're playing detective while you're watching it. So it's like, that's the way it would be if a detective showed up to the scene and didn't know the whole story. And so they're unraveling all the pieces and, you know, the, this movie is probably doing a better job than, than honestly the FBI or the detectives did with this case. I mean, they botched this up royally. Honestly, this, this really didn't have to happen this way. I mean, I'll be frank, at least from what I've seen from this. And I guess a lot of that is very much reality of the way that the, the police handled this case from the get-go, from the very first two murders. So I, I liked it. I thought it was a very interesting way to tell it. And honestly, even though you're going back in time, I think each episode progressively gets more disturbing. And that's what was really interesting about it, because you would think, although I think episode four is the most disturbing of all of them, but you would think with it going back in time that it would get less disturbing but i think it gets more more disturbing and that was pretty incredible that they were able to do that when you're kind of unraveling it and when he especially when you're getting to the episodes before he's even killed anybody because all the episodes before episode four except for in episode nine he hasn't killed anybody yet so it's a so that's an interesting way to kind of do it and show it but i i thought it was a good way so i, th I think it worked really well but i think Probably in lesser writer's hands or stuff, it probably wouldn't have worked that well. And like I said, the police really botched this up. And I think a big reason the police botched this up is because the first two victims of, of Andrews, of Andrew Cananans, um, were, I want to give, give their names. Well, Jeffrey Trail was the very first victim. Um, and then David Matson And and this is all allegedly stuff because all this stuff we can't, we don't really know. We weren't there. So we don't really know like the full story of their relationships. But um, David Matson supposedly was a man that Andrew Cunanan was madly in love with. And um, Jeffrey Trail was a man that he, that um, Andrew Cunanan had been friends with. And supposedly right before he murdered Jeffrey in David's apartment. And this is the most brutal murder in the whole show, I want to say. This episode, episode four, is really hard to watch. But he, supposedly he had sort of Jeffrey Trail was cutting him out of his life, or cutting Andrew Cannon out of his life. And then also supposedly there might have been some jealousy there with Jeffrey's relationship with David and all this. And so this is the first time he murders anybody. And when the police get there, they first they think. Because what happens is Andrew Cannon brutally murders Jeffrey Trail with a claw hammer and wraps him in this, car in this carpet and stuffs him behind a couch. And then they leave and go, he 
kidnaps David. I don't want to say they go on the run because he kidnaps David. I want it's very important to say that because unfortunately the police thought that David was in on this and that they had killed Jeffrey together and went on the run. Well, at first the police thought it was actually David that had been murdered and then they found out it wasn't. But the fact that David was a gay man and Jeffrey Trail was also a gay man, the police, I think, kind of botched it up because of that. And they said it was kind of some kind of lover's quarrel. And that's what happened. And then you see that throughout when there are two other men murdered. And, you know, like there's a whole scene where the FBI goes to Miami. This is before Versace. And they've got all these flyers and they haven't hung a single flyer up saying, you know, and Andrew Cunanan was able to walk around, and this is documented fact, he was able to walk around, go to a lot of gay clubs, gay bars around there, and nobody did anything, and he was able to assassinate Versace because of this, I think. So what do you think about that, about what it's saying, again, about, I mean, the police and how homophobic they are, and society, too? Yeah, I think it's uh, one of those things where they didn't believe that victims who happen to be gay men deserve to have the the best uh, investigative, um, not reporting, but investigative, like research, essentially, mm-hmm. like investigative research that they could possibly have because, you know, there is a lot of um, homophobia in police departments. And I don't want to say that they're unsympathetic victims because they're not, but to the police, they are. They're looking at them as, okay, they're not necessarily the most important people in the world. Um, That's why they, you know, they automatically thought that it was a lover's quarrel, that it wasn't anything like, okay, a brutal murder and then a kidnapping. Uh, There's a reason why they thought that. The fact that they automatically went to that just shows you how internalized uh, that thought process is with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with, if you think about it, who who gets the most uh, airplay when like a child is kidnapped, when it's like, especially like with black girls, they'll say she's a runaway. Um, but if it's a white girl, you know, oh, she's kidnapped, she was taken um, it, 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 and they plaster it everywhere. They, they blast it out. So it's one of those situations where they just didn't think that something that actually happened could actually happen. And that put them behind the eight ball. Uh, like you said, I mean, he was literally walking around Miami, like with yeah. nobody on his tail, nobody, you know, I mean, he's, he's he just, just having a good time. Picking up men, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's, it's bananas. It's absolutely bananas that this guy, he was sloppy. He yeah. was sloppy. He was, I mean, it's almost like he wanted to get caught. It, it feels like that. At least when you watch the, um, when you watch the, the series, it feels like he wants to be caught. Like he wants this attention on him. And the way he's going to get that attention is if he is caught and if his name is just splashing in the news and the fact that they couldn't catch this guy, it, it's mind boggling. It's absolutely mind boggling. Yeah. I, I totally, yeah. It blows my mind because he wasn't, I mean, he, in, I guess he had like a really high IQ in real life, but he wasn't smart as far as like, he wasn't a smart 
criminal. He didn't seem like he was. I mean, when he killed his third victim was um, Lee Miglin. And in the show, and, and this is to, you know, they there's no necessarily any evidence of this. In the show, they portray this, that Lee Miglin was in the closet. And that he had had kind of had been seeing um, because Andrew Cunanan was known to be with a lot of older gentlemen and older men. And he even worked as like an escort and he would, you know, he did that a lot too. And he kind of had his life paid for by older men. And Lee Miglin, who was an architect and a very, very well-known architect, he killed, viciously, brutally killed Lee Miglin as well. Um, and in the third episode, and they kind of insinuated that they had had something. But after he killed him, and this part is true, he hung out in the house. He made a ham sandwich. He ate, you know, he drank, you know, soda. He hung out there. So it wasn't like he was like running right away. And then he left. And, you know, and he left the um, Jeep that was David's um, because he had killed David. And so it's not like he was being smart about this. And I do agree, Tiff. I think there was a part of him that did want to get caught because then that meant kind of a fame thing for him, I think. I don't think it was that he wanted to stop. I think it was just that he wanted that fame part. Um, we'll never know, but that's that's kind of what I what I am assuming. But yeah, when he is in Florida and he goes to that hotel and he stays at that hotel and he meets that one guy and becomes friends with him. And then, and then there's also the scene where he takes that older man back to his hotel room and he wraps the duct tape around the older man's oh, that is so oh my gosh and then he starts dancing around the oh whew, that was creepy and you don't know what's going to happen and i think at that point andrew canan is just like well i can get away with anything i can do whatever i want to do and it was true and i think if versace had not been famous honestly because Versace was a gay man as well. And you could tell that even the police investigating it in the show, at least, uh, were also you could see that there was some homophobia there as well. But because Versace was so famous and well known, they kind of wrapped up things. But I think if Versace had not been, I think there is a real possibility that Cunanan could have gotten away with it again um, because they were already botching things up and they didn't seem to care that much about this. And this was also, you have to remember, this was also in the time of, of AIDS and the AIDS crisis. It was still part of in that same time period. So people always associated gay men with AIDS. And I think that also played a part in this. Um, just my opinion. I don't know this for a fact, of course. I think that's kind of what this is showing. I think while this is really a character study, I think it's also a critique of homophobia and um, homophobia in society and how uh, Cunanan also, I think, took advantage of that homophobia as well and knew that because of because of his first two victims being gay men that I, I mean, I don't know this for a fact, but I think that that probably played a part in it, too, is that he knew that, you know, because of the reality that this that they wouldn't care as much, sadly. And it's really sad, I think, with the murder of David, because for so, and I think people still, I think there are still some people that wonder if David was in on it. And then, you know, which is just sad because there's no real evidence to show that he was kidnapped um, and then he was murdered. He was shot in the back and then in the face. And, you know, there were defensive wounds and 
when they show it in episode four, you know, he puts his hands up above over his face, which kind of is, I guess, what probably they surmise happened because of the way he was shot. Um, so he was murdered as well. He was a victim as well. And it's just sad that he was thought of as an accomplice because it's, it's just a way to disrespect his memory and to not take it as seriously, I think, honestly. So it's just, it's just all around really tragic. I mean, this is a tragedy, a big, big tragedy. Um, and I think deaths could have been prevented. I think he didn't, it didn't have to lead to the point where he killed five people total um, that we know of, you know, you never know with this, but okay. Well, I want to talk about, this is a lot having to do with celebrity. Cunanan was very obsessed with Versace, at least what we see in this movie, uh, and obsessed with being with fame and with being recognized and being noticed and being wealthy and all that stuff and status. And I think you also see moments in this. There's a moment right after in the first episode after Versace is murdered and you see this woman taking a picture, a page from a magazine and she goes up and soaks it in the blood, which was so disturbing and then takes it back. Um, just this tourist. And so I want to ask you, Tiff, what do you think this is saying about our obsession with celebrity? And this also could even go back to the OJ one. Yeah. I think it's, you know, like you were talking about the critique of our, you know, societal homophobia and, and how especially gay men are treated and, and how they were treated during the AIDS crisis all the way through you know, to present day as well. Um, I think it's also a critique on the salaciousness of celebrity and how uh, the public at large looks at celebrity and idolizes celebrity. You know, that part with her dipping that magazine, you know, page is disgusting. I mean, it's just, it's just gross. But, you know, I mean, there are roots to like medieval England in that when people would hit, would were uh, beheaded, they used to take uh, bits of cloth and dip it in the blood and they would sell it because, you know, hey, <laughs> this is something, this is something, you know, especially when it was somebody that, that was a, that was a noble or somebody that was royal, like uh, when, when Henry VIII beheaded his second wife, Anne Boleyn, uh, there are documented cases of people dipping it, dipping bits of cloth in her blood. Now, whether they kept it or not, you know, like as souvenirs that, you know, who knows, but, or, or if they sold it, uh, but all the way through, um, you know, uh, some of the, the worst uh, lynchings of, of Black people, the people that were there witnessing, you know, white people, they would, they would use it as like picnics. And there was a very celebrity, celebratory feel for this. And they would take souvenirs. So they would take teeth, they would take fingers, they would take toes. Um, it, you know, just disgusting, 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 sadistic behavior. And I do, I do think that they do a really good job of showing how warped the idea of celebrity, the idea of being quote unquote famous can be because that was all that Cunanan wanted. He wanted to be famous. He wanted to be known and he wanted the 
the lifestyle that goes along with that. Uh, so I think they do a really excellent job uh, in that, even if it's done in a very brutal manner, extremely brutal. Um, like you said, this one is a hard one to watch. It, it's mm-hmm. really hard because he does some very, very awful things uh, to 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 the to his victims. Uh, it, it's one of those things where you know you might have to peek between your eyes because it's wow, it's a lot. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a tough one. It's a really tough one because while I love the performance, like I've said, and and that's part of the reason I was like kind of excited to rewatch it was just to watch that performance again. It's still very difficult. I do think it is it is very much a, a critique of of our obsession with celebrity. I think that's a big part of it. I think. You could say, and I don't know if, if the next one, if you didn't know, the third season is going to be covering um, Monica Lewinsky and all of that. And I really am keeping my fingers crossed that they treat Monica Lewinsky with respect. I really hope they do. Um, I'm going to hold my breath. But uh, you could even say that that will also be confronting our obsession with celebrity. And we do make serial killers celebrities. We just do in this society. That's the way we kind of treat them. And I think, you know, this was kind of showing a reflection of that not only is Andrew Cunanan obsessed with celebrity, but we as a society are obsessed with celebrity in general and with, you know, the most salacious sides of it and, you know, taking souvenirs and taking photos. And I mean, you look at the paparazzi and how, you know, the paparazzi are responsible for instance, for Princess Diana's death. And so you know, we just, we've had this obsession for years with that and obsession with death. And so I think this is, this movie is also critiquing that as well. While I do still think it does deserve a little bit of critique with the fact that it does also could play into that and also be kind of making, like I said, Andrew Cunanan almost a celebrity um, in himself too, uh, which he doesn't deserve that because he was a horrible, horrible human being. But I want to talk about now, I, I know this is, might be kind of a weird question to ask, but were there any moments or episodes or things that really, really stuck out to you in this, Tiff? When they do go back and look at his childhood, look at his relationship with his mother, look at his relationship with his father, that was extremely interesting to me because it felt like he blamed his mother for a lot of the mm-hmm. misery that was inflicted upon him. Whereas he still was hoping and desiring for a relationship with his father and the father was the one that abandoned them. That was extremely interesting to me because, you know, the sins of the father are inflicted upon the mother. And why is that? You know, why does the mother always get blamed for something that is the fault of the father? So I think they do a pretty good job of delving into that and finding out his motivations for a lot of things. But I don't think the question is ever really answered. I think Mm -hmm. it's almost like a choose your own adventure type of deal where we are, we are supposed to fill in the blanks ourselves. So I, I actually like that part of it. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think uh, for me, pretty much episode four and eight are the ones that I always kind of, I mean, I think there's a lot of great episodes throughout, but I think, I mean, they're very hard to watch. I think those are the two episodes that are the hardest to watch, honestly, are four and eight. There's a moment in episode four where after he has killed Jeffrey Trail and he's kidnapped David in there in a bar 
and there's Amy Mann. It's actually Amy Mann singing, and she's singing um, the Cars song "Drive." And um, David, you see it kind of split between Andrew watching this performance and David in the bathroom contemplating escaping through uh, this little window there, which he probably wouldn't have even been able to fit through. Um, and there's this shot where you watch Andrew watching uh, Amy Mann singing this song and the camera slowly dollies in on him and his face and he starts crying. And it's another moment of just calling out Darren Chris's performance, really. But because that's a moment where you kind of see this moment of vulnerability, this moment of fear, this moment of maybe he's kind of realizing what he has done in one split second there. There's a lot of sorrow and loss and pain in that moment. And a lot of the times when you're seeing Cunanan throughout this, you don't see a real human being because he's always pretending, he's always lying. Like he has people say, well, what am I supposed to believe? And in this same episode, there's a scene where Andrew and David are at a diner and Andrew is saying, well, do you remember the first time we met? Which we end up seeing it later. And I believe it's episode six. And they're talking about how they first met in San Francisco. And and David's like, you know, talking about how he, you know, wanted to be like Andrew. He wanted to be one of the people in high society, but it was all a lie. And you see Andrew kind of flinch at that and he just keeps talking. He's like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to accept the fact that you are calling me out on the fact that I'm a, um, a liar, that I lie all the time. I'm a compulsive liar. Nothing I say is real. And whenever Andrew gets called out on that, you see throughout this thing, it's like this moment of that's where you see the real anger and the real desperation come from. And you could even almost call that like maybe that was a motive, too. Um, and then in his childhood, you see a lot of things there where, yes, he was always angry at his mom. Any scenes you see with his mom, there is one scene with his mom, though, that was really interesting where he says to his mom, this is right before um, he goes to Michigan to go, you know, and, and ends up killing Jeffrey and then David. It's right before that. And he says to her, mom, I'm not happy. I'm unhappy. And she just completely talks over that and ignores that. So you see that there might've been instances where people may have seen something was wrong and kind of ignored it. And, you know, I'm not blaming them at all. I'm just saying that that, that might've happened. And you do see it is true that in real life, Andrew Kanana, who was the youngest of three children, I believe it was three children, he got to sleep in the master bedroom, like that was his bedroom. And so he was kind of lauded upon, especially by his dad, supposedly, who treated him like he was the best. And then it is insinuated in the eighth episode that his dad may have uh, been sexually abusing him, which I researched. I didn't see that anywhere else. So I'm not sure if that's just something they just add in the show or it was on the book that this is based on. But yeah, you see that kind of that that might have been part of it. But he definitely was wanting his dad's attention. And, and the actor who plays his dad is incredible, too. But there's a scene where they after his dad has abandoned them and he goes and visits his dad and there's this confrontation there and it's really disturbing scene to watch as well. And then of course, in episode nine, he calls his dad and says, you need to get me out of here. And his dad says he's going to, and then he watches his dad later on TV, basically um, saying no and wanting to get the film rights to this and wanting to make money off of his son. So you see that he'd always probably wanted his dad's attention so we'll never know why he did this, but I think those two episodes are the most interesting ones to examine because I think they kind of show 
um, like where he started and how he got to that place maybe and how he, you know, there was so much kind of built up for him and he wanted to be like his father, yet his father was not a good person either. And, you know, his relationship with his mom and all that and how that messed that up. But yeah, those are just the two episodes that I always kind of call it because I think they're the two best in the whole series. Honest, I mean, they're both the hardest ones to watch too, but they're two of the best. Um, so I just want to briefly, before we wrap up here, because I've already, we've already, well, I have mainly, but yes, Tiff did too, but we raved about Darren Chris and his performance. But I think there are other amazing performances in this as well. So I just want to know, Tiff, are there any performances you want to quickly call out? You know, I honestly, Darren Chris takes up so much space in this that, <laughs> that I almost true. didn't that I almost didn't pay attention to anybody else. You know, I felt like I that's felt very like true. Penelope Cruz was really distracting as as Donatella, and I actually think she's a she's a pretty good actor, but I didn't necessarily think she was the right one for this. I don't know. Um, I don't know if it was the accent. <laughs> Could have been. It could have been the accent, um, but I can't. I can't really call it. Uh, you know what? Ricky Martin was actually really good in this. He was. Yeah. I, I thought Ricky Martin was was really good. Besides that, <laughs> Chris just dominates. He, he really did. He. I mean, he really, really did. It, it's just, yeah. Darren Chris is just. He takes up a lot of space. Yeah. Takes up a lot of space in it, and um, uh, well, okay. So Edgar Ramirez was was pretty strong, I think, because he doesn't have a huge, huge role in it. But I think he's a he's a good actor, and um, the way he plays Versace was kind of like almost mellow, which plays off of the flamboyance of Donatella. So I thought that was a really good that was a really good dichotomy between the two of them. But I think this is Darren Chris's world and, you know, we're just living in it and they were just living in it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's very, yeah, because I mean, everybody knows I love Darren Chris in this, but I do, there are a couple performances I do want to mention. I think uh, Cody Fern who plays David uh, Matson, I think he's really good in this. Uh, he has been in a lot of American horror stories and I think he's excellent in episode four. Uh, you at playing that fear. Um, you know, he witnesses, he watches as Cunanan brutally murders Jeffrey, and you see, you watch his face as you hear the sounds of the murder, and it's it's pretty brutal to watch, and it's pretty heartbreaking. And to watch his fear and to watch him go through that. And there's a moment where he kind of fantasizes that he's gotten away from Andrew and he's found this cabin and he sees his dad and it's this very beautiful and heartbreaking moment. So I want to call it him. I think he's good. I think um, Finn Whitrock, who plays Jeffrey, is really good too. So I want to say that as well. Um, but yeah, I do agree. I mean, it, it's Darren Chris's show. It's Darren Chris's performance that dominates. It's, I mean, I think there are a lot of good performances in here, but because Darren Chris is so incredible, I think it's very hard to really call out any other performance that's up to the same level. And I'm not saying that like Darren Chris is a selfish actor or anything like that. It's just more that his performance is so incredible and amazing that it's almost like you're watching these characters 
not caricatures, but like these little mignettes playing in Darren Chris's head um, and Andrew Cananan's head, because this is all about that. And if Darren Chris hadn't given such a great performance, probably would be talking about other ones. And I do want to say, I, you know, it was interesting when I first watched this and I agree, I think Penelope Cruz was kind of distracting. And the first time I watched this, I was like, okay, if this is going to be a lot about her, I don't know if I'm going to be able to watch this to be honest. And then Darren Chris and I was like, okay, never mind, I can watch this. But yeah, I just wanted to know if there were any other ones, but yeah, it is. It's Darren Chris's vehicle. I mean, it really just, it really is. Well, for time reasons, <laughs> Since we are over the two-hour mark. This is the first time in a while we've had a two-hour episode. But I just want to know quickly, are you excited for the next one that's covering? It's going to be interesting because that was another, uh, like, uh, societal event, like, Mm -hmm. you know, the trial of OJ, um, that dominated the public space. You know, and impeachment generally does. Um... And the way that they treated Monica Lewinsky was horrific. And she is a, she is a producer on it. So oh, I'm, good. I'm oh, hopeful good. that she'll be treated with a lot of care. The character will be treated with a lot of care and a lot of, um, you know, just a lot of grace because mm-hmm. she absolutely was not uh, when, when all of this went down. So um, I'm caught optimistic uh, regarding it. I do not like the fact that they put, uh, they're putting Sarah Paulson or they put Sarah Paulson in a fat suit um, to be Linda Tripp. Um, that bothers me. That, that annoys me because it could have cast an actress that was already, and, and Linda Tripp, I mean, you look at Linda Tripp, who is an awful person. Um mm-hmm. Let's just call that, you know, let's call it spade a spade. But she was not a, like a big woman. She's like average size. So they could have cast an average size actor instead of Paulson, who was very, very thin. So I'm bothered by that. Uh, I'm trying not to let it bother me so much, but I'm bothered by that. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, I don't know. I, I, the first two have been really excellent. So I'm hoping that this third installment is just as good. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad to, I didn't know that and I should have looked at that, but I'm glad to know that Monica Lewinsky is a producer because that's my biggest worry is how they treat her because she was treated like trash and still is to this day. Bill Clinton, is, you know, is thought of as this great, wonderful, amazing man. That's the way he's looked at uh, by the left. And frankly, I, I don't like Bill Clinton. I think he's scumbag, honestly. And so... I, I really don't want him to be treated like this hero and, you know, put on a pedestal. So I'm hopeful that won't happen. I did think it was interesting that Clive Owen was cast, but I love Clive Owen and, you know, we haven't seen him as much. So I'm excited for that. I do agree about the the fat suit and all of that. You know, we need to end those days, please, please, please. It's not necessary. There are plenty of talented actresses out there that could have done this role. And I love Sarah Paulson, as we've talked about, but yeah, you didn't need to do that. But so I am cautiously optimistic as well. I'm more optimistic now with knowing that Monica Lewinsky is a producer because she has been treated like garbage for so long and she deserves to not be treated like garbage. So 
I'm really, really hoping that that doesn't happen. Okay. Well, this has been a really good, this has been a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Tiff. So we're just going to go ahead and close out and I'm just going to have you just tell everybody where you can be found. Well, you can find me on mostly Twitter at who is Tiff is me. Uh, that is at who is Tiff is me. And I am usually ranting about something that I watched (laughs) 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 and being mad about it (laughs) or, you know, on occasion, uh, just on occasion (laughs) talking about my favorites, which are usually the Lord of the Rings. (laughs) 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 That's generally what my Twitter is all about. (laughs) And then sprinkle in some, some, uh, some social justice issues as well. So that's me in a nutshell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at EAprilBeauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at facebook.com slash it's a fandom thing pod. On Twitter at fandom thing pod. No, it's in that one. On Instagram at it's a fandom thing pod. If you have any feedback, show notes, questions about our upcoming trivia event, feel free to reach out to us at it's a fandom thing pod at gmail.com. And next week we are going to be back with a live stream. So this is actually going to be, this is actually going to be tonight because this is dropping Friday. So if you're listening to this during the day, it's going to be tonight at uh, 7 PM mountain standard time. We are going to be talking about female gamers. I'm not a female gamer, but I have Paula and Angela on who are. So we're going to be talking about being a, a woman in that, world and what that's like so that should be a lot of fun so join us live for that one or just tune in next uh, Wednesday when that episode drops and then next Friday we are going to be talking about True Blood should be a blast and then pretty soon we're going to be diving into some WB shows so look for that we're going to be revisiting Buffy which uh, Tiff will be on that one as well with that one we're going to be talking a lot about um, Joss Whedon so there will be triggers for that one of course Um, and then we're going to be talking about Dawson's Creek, Felicity and Gilmore Girls So that should be fun as well. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing. Black Lives Matter and Stop Asian Hate. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.